And I'm going to begin today, though, by reading a familiar verse out of hopefully 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hopefully it's familiar, not hopefully I read it there. Um, and uh, it says this, because this is an interesting passage, uh, to say the least. Verse 16 says, all scripture, I looked it up in the Greek, and it means all, in case you're wondering. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. That's important to remember as we come to passages like we have today. Uh, last week uh, was a little more uh, theologically heavy, and I don't believe, though, that all Scripture, in, in reference to last week, is going to always, like sermons, arrive to this neatly packaged kind of interpretation that gives you a very pragmatic, step-by-step way to apply such passage to your life. Some very much like that. Uh, some will, will just give you like, you know, here are the five things that we're supposed to do as men, as women, as Christians. But as we saw last week, Scripture is, is God's self-revelation of himself. And it's breathed out by God, maybe more often than not, to teach us less about what to do and much more about what to know about him. And we need to get to a place including myself as I prepare and as you study and we study, that that's enough. It's enough to just sit in the knowledge of God and how He's revealed Himself in Scripture, and I don't need the five steps, you know, now that I know that, what does that mean for me? Sometimes it's just to sit in who God is and stand or sit there in awe. And that's enough. And if Jesus' prayer in John 17, as he's about to go to the cross and he's praying for his disciples there and the future disciples, which would be the church, he prays that this, he says, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing God in and of itself is not a means to an end. That's okay and very good to be the end itself just to know God. And so I say that because um, we get to passages in the Bible like Joshua chapter 12 that amount to 24 verses of 33 conquered kings and kingdoms with names that I will probably butcher and we're hard to pronounce. But it's similar to like when you get to a genealogy in the Bible where it's, you know, Joe begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And when we get to those, I don't know about you, but it's very tempting to kind of ignore or to skim over those kind of passages because they don't, they don't seem to have really any devotional value whatsoever. And they may not have any theological value is what we think. Like, I know, this doesn't, I can't like sit and meditate and like, oh, amazing. And I also go, what is this teaching me about God? It's just a list of names. It's just stuff. And so it's hard. But... As with all Scripture, and especially these kind of passages, we have to ask the question, okay, if all Scripture is really breathed out by God, why did the Holy Spirit feel it necessary to include this? Why this? It has to be significant in some way. So, in terms of the narrative of the story for chapter 12, here's what the role that plays in the story as, as English teacher here, right? It is halfway through the book, and it's a summary of what has happened really in the first 11 chapters, 
but also what happened prior to that in the previous time with Moses before they came into the promised land. And the first six verses of this passage, just kind of literary speaking, the first six verses are about the land um, that, that the two kings, namely Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who Og was actually the king or ruler of a similar group of people like the um, uh, Anakim, the giants. But it's about those two kings and the conquering that took place on the east side of the Jordan during the 40 years sometimes that Israel was wandering before they came into the promised land. So that's the first six verses. The last 18 verses of Joshua 12 record the names where Joshua conquers 31 different kings, not all that we saw in detail in the last 11 chapters, but he names 31 different kings that have been conquered in about the last seven years. And we figure that out basically in Joshua 14 with the age of Caleb. So it's taken about seven years to do this. Although you read it in you know, basically seven weeks and you're like, man, that seemed like it was really fast. But remember, there was a lot of conquering that happened on the east side of the Jordan. And then Joshua said, all you people, men, particularly warriors, leave your wives and your children here and come with us and conquer. It wasn't just an overnight trip. It was seven years being away from their homes and sacrificing for the mission of God. And so the second half then basically is those seven years. And it's the seven years that it took to basically break the major Canaanite strongholds. Joshua, I, Bethel, Gibeon, all these places. And in one sense, at this point in the story, all the land belongs to him. And the end of Joshua 11, it says that the land had rest from war. And so now he goes into this summary And really, they haven't fully possessed everything God's promised, but they've come to a place of peace and of conquest that it's time to to stop. And so we have this time between the conquest and the settlement of the land, where they actually start dividing things up. So, we're in Joshua 12. I'll go through the, the verses. Bear with me for the names. I'll do my best. Okay? says, now... Verse 1, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, so on the east side of the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled over Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon. And from the middle of the valley, as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Kinnereth eastward, and in the direction of Beth Shethimoth, to the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephem, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Adri, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selica and all Bashan, to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Makathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So that's everything that happened before they went across the Jordan into the Promised Land. Moses died over there because he was not allowed to go in, and Joshua continued. Verse 7, And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side, west side of Jordan, from, you know, what's the coastus with the mostus, right? And from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount 
Halak that rises towards Seir, and Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Mekeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lesheron, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazar, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Ekshaf, one. The king of Te-Anak, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jechneum, in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Napfath Dor, one. The king of Goyim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. Let it never be said that we don't read every verse of the Bible at this place. Now, this is not the passage you're going to open to for your devotions every morning as some kind of inspirational thing to inspire you for the day. But... It's a big list, it's a necessary list, and we'll see what we can see in it. Um, There are 33, so the two in the first six verses, and then 31 listed in the second 18. Uh, 33 different battles, uh, 33 different but conquered enemies. So this is reflective. And it's noteworthy, I think, that in the structure of the book, this passage comes halfway through Joshua. And it is... I think between, well, it is between where Israel has been historically and where they're still going to go in the future because there's more conquest to occur um, to possess all the land. So the story isn't over, but the list brings you to a place, and the writer, I believe, intends this, where you have to stop. You are forced to reflect on what has happened over the previous 11 chapters or several years. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not often that I or we stop and I think really consider, I mean, stop and intentionally decide to take time, as much time as it least took to read that list, and consider what God has accomplished. Really. I don't know when the last time You did that. Maybe it's one of those times where you gathered as a circle and you were forced to say, okay, everyone name something, like at the Thanksgiving table, what are you thankful to God for, right? And we come up with something as as best we can. But it's not often we stop and really ask ourselves, what has God done? Now, the busyness of our lives, I think, and, and the speed of our culture, which is very fast, has or forces us, I think, to keep our eyes focused, or at least looking at the next task, the next battle, the next hill, what's next. We're always looking forward, it seems. Now, 
These are what we call our to-do lists, right? Everyone's got to-do lists. My wife makes to-do lists for me. I have my own to-do lists. I have even an app that's a to-do list, basically, of things I want to do, want to accomplish. And these are really the only kind of lists I make. It's very rare that I, I make a list that you know, is reflective of what I've done. Now, if we're not careful, we can get so task-oriented in our spirituality, so task-oriented even in our relationship with God, that the only thing we ever do when we talk with God is to make or give Him our to-do list and tell Him all the things and focus on all the things that we want Him to do, that we hope that He does, that we expect Him to do, and really, we're not worshiping God in that moment. I think we're actually worshiping the stuff we want done. Totally focused on it. And that's why I think instead of a to-do list, maybe we need something like a to-done list that goes back and says, this is what actually has been done. These are the things that God has already accomplished in order for us to even think about the to-dos and maybe put the to-do stuff in the right perspective. Now, there are innumerable places, and I, just, I was overwhelmed this week as I began to think about this. There are innumerable places where God is one, where God is provided, where God is sustained, where God is protected, that I've taken completely for granted. And I'm not even talking about the big things. I'm talking about the innumerable myriad of little things that I take for granted. Not to mention the things I don't even know about that God's protected me from. If you think about that. And so, we need to take a moment, and Joshua, I think, is, is wanting his people to take a moment to reflect on what God has done, to enjoy what God has done and what he's doing right now, as opposed to always looking into the future. To meditate on the goodness of God. Now, that is, I believe, the power of a list of victories like this. That's what it is. It's a list of victories. Victories that they never should have won. Victories that had very little to do with them. And he wants us to take a moment to identify exactly what God has done really yesterday so that we can move forward in today with, I think, clear eyes. And we must never forget that the writer isn't primarily concerned with the people who actually fought the battle. He's thinking about the future generations and the changes that might occur in their thinking and the way of doing things. The list here is supposed to be, and it is, 2,500 years later, it's still there. The list is supposed to be a permanent record for us, for the generations that come after Joshua, written down so that it's permanent, to be remembered, to be reviewed, to be retold, Again and again and again and again and again. So that when you get Israel to the next battle, which they will come, when they want to doubt, when they want to feel overwhelmed or just naturally feel overwhelmed, when they get to those places of impossible odds, when defeat seems guaranteed, when they felt distant from God, where are you, God? Where are, is my community? They can look back and go, boom. List. Faithful. And so here are the things, I believe, 
that the monument wanted them to remember. For Joshua, okay, before we get to us. We always want to run ahead to us. How does it apply to me? Let's just think about Joshua for a second. The first thing it was to remind them of was their unity. What do I mean by that? Well, there are two basically lists, one shorter than the other. And we need to understand that this is written right before the land's going to be divided. So shortly after this, and you'll see this in the next chapters, they're going to go, okay, you get this land, you get this land, you get this land. Here are your boundaries. I mean, I have a whole sermon on boundaries. You're like, are you kidding me? Yes. Well, no, I'm not kidding you. It's like a big land survey. That's all it is. And you're like, well, there was a mountain here, and it was, you know, the northern border was the river here, and then there was three bushes over here, and that's pretty much what it is. You go, what does that mean? You'll be blown away, okay? But they are going to divide the land and, and give everyone their section. Now think about how tempting it's going to be for each of those tribes to suddenly stop caring about the war, stop caring about their brothers, and suddenly worry just about their stuff. Suddenly, uh, I, just, I have my house. You just worry about you. I'm going to worry about me, and that's it. The community would be, there really wouldn't be a community. It would be put my walls up, stay out of my backyard. That's easily going to happen, and Joshua doesn't want that to happen with the brothers. He also doesn't want this to happen. As generations go on, and we see in our culture today, the number one description of today's youth, sorry youth, is entitlement. Now, youth extends all the way to about 25 these days, so let's be careful. But this idea of entitlement that we haven't had to work for things, that I'm owed something just by the fact that I breathe, okay? And what happens is Joshua, I think, is a little bit concerned about those generations who will come with, that, with a complete disconnect, perhaps, with those who came before them. It is valuable to have a connection with history, your roots, where he came from, to appreciate where you're going, even understand sometimes where you're going. So there's both a geographic, we've got brothers across rivers, but we've also got brothers across time that we are connected with. We are part of something larger. God has one mission, he has one people, and through, and though those people look different, they live in different places, they, they, they you know, do different things culturally maybe, ultimately, God's true, genuine believers worship the one same God, and they are on the same mission that originally started. And he doesn't want them to forget that, to remember their unity, but also to remember that, the second thing, that he's a God who keeps his promises. Joshua 12 could just be called promise kept. That could be the name maybe of the whole book, but in particular Joshua chapter 12. This summary is proof that God kept the promises that he made hundreds of years later, beginning with Abraham, and then reminded to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Moses, and to Joshua. That God keeps his promises. He does not change. He is faithful. And even though there are minor battles still left to fight, to take full possession, most of the major conflicts have been won, and he said the land is at rest. We've won, ultimately. We have control of this. And we need to remember that the list, as it's pasted up there, wasn't to go, dude, Joshua, you are an awesome general. Amazing. Your strategy was incredible. Our battling skills were phenomenal. That's not what it's about. 
It's a list to say, do you realize how impossible the odds were? And who actually won the battle? It's to remind them without doubt that Joshua doesn't have an army of which God happens to be in and for. That Joshua is part of God's army. He's on God's team, not the other way around. So God, when I say kept his promise, what I mean is that the land without doubt was possessed by Joshua through hard work, but it was only possessed because it had been conquered by God. In other words, you have what you have, not because you're some amazing person. It's amazing how how we often think like, well, you know, I have what I have because I've earned it, or I haven't screwed up, or I've done these things. Do you realize that the only reason you have anything is because God has given it to you? Oh, I worked hard. Who gave you the energy to work? Well, I worked out. Who gave you the desire? Who gave you the breath? Who gave you the hands and feet to do anything? No matter what you have in this world, it's given by God, starting with life. Everything after that is pretty much given by God as well. So God is the one fighting. God is the one leading. God is the one protecting. God is the one sustaining. And he says in the beginning of Joshua, and this is where I think the reminder is like, okay, God kept his promise, not, hey, God, we helped you out with your promise. The first 11 chapters began with Joshua chapter 3 that says this, verse 10, this is how you will know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. God will do this. He will do this. And again in Joshua 10, after it's all done, and Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So he puts up a list to say, let's see what God did. This is not what we accomplished. Look what God did best through us, but still could have done without us. God did it. The third thing is not just that he kept his promise. Not that he just gave him the land, which he did, but how he actually did it. Now, this is really pretty cool. Joshua's, you notice, and I kind of emphasized it as, you know, somewhat facetiously of the one in the second list. It's like makes a point to say one every time. One, one, one. It's not like there's twos and threes and fours. It's always one. One, 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 one. Why would he do that? Is he just some Hebrew, you know, stylistic thing? Maybe. I'm sure you can find a scholar to say that. But when I just read it, I go, okay. There's a very detailed list he's trying to be very specific about. And this list of conquered, conquered kings reminds Israel, I think, to not just think about, oh, the great wonderful battles, Like, remember Jericho? Wasn't that awesome? When the walls fell down, that was the most amazing one. Oh, no, no, no. Remember Gibeon? When he was, like, throwing down hailstones? Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. Remember Eglon? No, what happened to that? That wasn't as amazing. So it's a tendency to, like, think about just the amazing battles, right? The truth is, he wants him to focus on every specific battle, not just the big one, because catch this. All, all the small victories, 
every minuscule victory and conquest that we have is without doubt by the hand of God. And they are, all the small ones, cause for just as much celebration and just as much worship as winning the big ones or the whole war. The small ones, maybe even more so. But those are the ones that we often fail to recognize. Each individual victory demonstrated a different awesome part of God's character, but every single victory demonstrated his faithfulness, no matter how small or undramatic it might have been. Now, it is noteworthy, though, this, and this may not speak to you, but it's definitely spoken to a lot of people, I think. Notice what's not on the list. The one defeat that they had. Right? They were defeated in their second battle. It's listed as a victory at I, but we know that they were defeated first. God doesn't include it on the list. That's not just an oversight by the writer if Scripture is all breathed out by God. God did not put it there. He did not want it there. Though God knows our failures, He knows them. He wants us to focus on His victories. And why is it that we become governed? I am just as guilty. I can give you a list of every failure I've had. Every failure this week. And my tendency so often is to simply focus on what I haven't done, what I haven't accomplished, where I screwed up really, to the extent where it begins to govern me. It governs my attitudes, it governs my perceptions, it governs every word that I speak. Because I'm thinking only about what I haven't done as opposed to focusing on God's victories. And I'm not trying to promote this like, you know, zippity doodah spirituality like, I'm only going to think about the good stuff. I'm just saying there comes a point where you have to stop and forget the failures. And you have to move forward. And I pray, gosh, that we could just commit to discarding those lists of personal failures and start adopting a list full of God's divine victories. Now, this list then for Joshua what, is, what, what the snarf does that have to do with us, right? After 2,500 years, what could it possibly have for us today? And so I do believe this, that lists like this, say like this, lists of this nature are necessary when we ourselves feel overwhelmed by life or whatever, when defeat is looming, we feel like you're just going to be destroyed by something, or when you just feel distant from God, like, where are you, God? You seem like you're just silent, like you've never even been here. And you begin to think that maybe, gosh, he never has loved you. Or do you feel distant from your community and your brothers? Like, dude, I'm the only one suffering like this. The only one that has had to fight these battles. This is where these lists become very important. And when you have those sense of defeat and worthlessness, the world has a very specific solution to that that they try to, to sell. And I, I say that because when I was a teacher for 10 years in uh, the high school, we had more assemblies about um, this than anything. And what, what I'm talking about is self-esteem. Focus on the self, on the, on the personal value of, of who you are. You feel worthless, you just need to more self-esteem. And 
There are huge programs in the schools created to encourage and develop self-esteem. Or if you look it up in the dictionary, it says pride in oneself. Think about that. Pride in oneself. And I don't want anyone to throw me like, you know, an email to say like, are you saying you shouldn't have self-esteem? Just, just follow me, okay? The cultural solution, the world solution to feeling defeated is to look at your past accomplishments. Look what you've done. You've done this. You've done this. That's not so bad. You've accomplished this. You should feel good, right? Now, on the surface you go, there's nothing really wrong with that. People should be proud in some sense of some of the work that they accomplished, and I don't disagree. But there comes a point where it becomes bad, where pride in oneself becomes destructive and distracting and ultimately to a place of self-glory and self-worship, where that is where your accomplishments, what you've done, is what gives you joy and hope and security and meaning. That kind of self-esteem, that kind of pride in oneself is completely unbiblical and completely opposite to what the gospel says we're supposed to be doing. Where we're supposed to die to ourselves, to live in Christ. God does not want us to be self-centered in that way. Instead, without doubt, you're going to feel a sense of worthlessness at times. You're going to feel a sense of being defeated. For all of us, I think, maybe again, I'm the only one, there have been moments where I feel I've failed as a man. I've never felt I've failed as a woman, but maybe some women have, okay? I guess I've totally failed as a woman. That's probably a good thing. But I've failed as a husband. I've felt that. I've failed as a pastor. I've felt that. The question is, is that what governs me? When I feel defeated, am I just sitting in all what I should have done, what I, what I could have done? After every sermon, no matter what, how many people say good job or how many people say that sucked, I still beat myself up every Sunday afternoon. Never fails. That's why I take a nap so I can, like, avoid it. I feel defense or defeated often. Maybe you do as well. But it's at those times where God is supposed to, or God is telling us to stop looking at ourselves. Stop looking at our accomplishments or our lack thereof. Because even in our accomplishments, we still fall short of his glory. There's, there's, no, there's nothing good there to even like be excited about. That's not of God. Instead, God says, look to Jesus constantly. To the Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, the second Joshua. Look to Jesus and his accomplishments on the cross. And just as Joshua's list is supposed to provide Israel a sense of unity and security and empowerment and lead them to gratefulness, so the cross is supposed to do for us. First, it reminds us that our faith, just like Joshua's list, is rooted in history, something that happened. This isn't some idea that someone just came up with one day. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who really lived, who really died, who really rose from the dead. There is history to this. There is a story to this that's not really a story as much as a report of exactly what happened from eyewitnesses. And secondly, it reminds us that our church, our faith, our family is built on the foundation of others who came before us. 
beginning with Jesus, maybe even going back to Joshua, but beginning with Jesus and then his disciples and the apostles and the early church fathers and other church leaders that come from that and in other family members, maybe in your own past. That we're not some new kid on the block. Look, we got a great idea now. We are preaching the exact same things that Peter preached in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 when the church was first born. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He lived the perfect life you should have and didn't, but he gives it to you. He died the death that was reserved for you, but he took your place. This is what the same thing we've been preaching. And that helps us to remain consistent and pure and connected with history. And moreover, we, we have to be careful to think that Damascus Road or any church has got it all together and figured out better than the other churches. Well, you know what? This place is way cooler, way more biblical. Whoa, whoa. There is not only a historical connection, there is a geographic brotherhood that exists. And I will say it's a brotherhood that exists with true, gospel-centered, Jesus-preaching, biblically-governed churches. There are churches that don't fit that definition. I understand that. But there are many that do. There are many churches today, families of families, that are part of our family gathering in other place. So don't for a minute begin to think, we're the only ones that got it together here. Wrong. There are many churches, and it's important to have lists to remember that there are people in this place that believe the exact same things that we do, and they are our brothers and our sisters. So what's on Jesus' list? What's his list look like? Tim Keller writes about the meaning of the word gospel, and it does mean news in Greek, and it really means the news of a great historical event that changes the listener's condition. It's similar to, um, it requires a response, but it's similar to a, the news of a great victory in war, the news of an ascension of a new king. It is news, a declaration that necessitates a response. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's declaration that the king has come, the land has been taken back. It's the news of what God has done to accomplish salvation in Jesus. That's what it is, historical news, powerful news. And it's news that God kept his promise, not just to Abraham, but he kept it to Abraham, to Adam and Eve, who in Genesis chapter 3, he promised Someday the seed of a woman will come and he will crush the head of Satan and restore all things. To save men, destroy sin, Satan, and death. That he kept his promise through Yeshua, namely the second Joshua, Jesus who came to battle for my heart. So our, the last verse in Joshua chapter 11, the land had peace. The war was over is what we find in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. It is an explanation of this is the gospel. And it says in verse 15, verse 3, Paul saying, here's what the news is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, colon, here's the news, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's our Joshua 1 through 11. The declaration, the war is over. But it's not enough to just declare Jesus has won. We need a Joshua 12. A list that we can put up. Something more specific. A list of conquered enemies that we actually very rarely take the time to sit and actually meditate on. Like, what did Jesus actually do? Well, he saved me. And what? A list of conquered enemies written down to be remembered, reviewed, retold, recited again and again and again because there is a danger in forgetting the works of the Lord. There is a danger in forgetting the victories of God. If you don't preach yourself the gospel, if we fail to preach the self the gospel every day and often we might begin to believe that one of those conquered enemies still has power. We must constantly remind ourselves of the list of Jesus because they don't have power. They're defeated. They're conquered. And so here's a very brief, I could have came up with 33, but I thought that would take too long. A list that Joshua 12 foreshadowed. A list, I believe, of all the things that Jesus conquered on the cross. Some of these might speak to you at different places, and there are many more, but this is the list that I came up with. It's a little bit shorter, but it's a list, a, a picture of the goodness of a good God toward a bad people who do bad things, namely me. Here's Jesus' short list. Jesus conquered the rebellion of my heart. He didn't just say, hey, oh, put your weapons down. He put his finger in the end of the gun, ripped the gun out of my hand, and said, you're on my team now. He conquered the rebellion of my heart. He conquered my blindness to the truth. Blind people don't cause themselves to see. God conquered that so I could even see the truth. That I could be born again and even see the kingdom of God, he tells Nicodemus. Jesus conquered my emotional rejection of him. The feeling of having to feel good about everything. He conquered my intellectual judgment of him to say, i got to know everything. He conquered my pride to admit that I even needed a Savior, that I could save myself. He conquered the power of lust in my sinful eyes. Doesn't mean temptation doesn't come, but it does mean without doubt that temptation does not have power over me ultimately. He conquered the lust of my sinful hands. He conquered my self-righteous efforts to save myself where I thought I could work myself to God. He conquered, though, the condemnation of the law that says you need something. The just condemnation that said you're not good enough. But he conquered that by becoming good enough for me. Jesus conquered my slavery to sin. Do you realize that Romans 6 tells you you are no longer a slave to sin? You are no longer a slave to sin. You have power within you for those who are in Christ to conquer an enemy that's defeated. He conquered the guilt of my sin, which is huge. I don't have to beat the snot out of myself all the time. He already knows how screwed up I am. And he still loves me. 
right? He didn't go, okay, I'm going to save you. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. I can't believe you did that. Uh, He's God. He knew exactly what I'm going to do, have done, and everything that will happen. So he says, innocent. He conquered the shame of my sin, the embarrassment of my sin. He became disgraced, betrayed, beaten, spit upon so that I didn't have to. And I could say, you know what? I'm not defined by the sins committed against me. I'm defined by Jesus. He conquered my fear of rejection because of my sin. Why do people lie? Because they don't want people to think less of them. I could care less. Because God's already said, I know it all. I don't fear being rejected by him because I failed to even obey him. He said, I know you can't obey. That's why Jesus obeyed for you. He conquered my need for approval of a world full of sinful men. He conquered my sense of worthlessness by giving me meaning and purpose now. To have a purpose like, what am I supposed to do in my life? Build a house, build a family. He says, you're to glorify me. That's your purpose here. That's why I haven't taken you yet. He conquered my sinful desire to have to have power, wealth, and fame because he came and said, that's not the way to true joy or contentment. And he gave all power away though he had it, all wealth away though he had it, all fame away though he deserved it. He conquered my addiction. We're all addicts. We just have different idols we're addicted to, big and small. And he's conquered that. He conquered my enemy, Satan, the prince of sin. And though he is prowling about like a lion looking for someone to devour, he can't devour me. I got the stinking armor of God in with swords and like, you know, missiles. Okay? Bring it. I shouldn't say that. In Christ. He's the one that fights. I can't fight against Satan, but Jesus certainly can. And that's why I depend upon him. Jesus finally conquered my enemy, death. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Because this is not all there is. There will be a day that I will be with Jesus. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day. I do not fear death. Death was the result of sin, but Jesus conquered it and brings life. In essence, Jesus conquered the greatest enemy, me, myself. And he did it by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So to close us out, know that this is only the first half of our list. And what I mean is, this is, the, I think, the big victories that are necessary to set the stage for all other victories that we have. This is the list where we start with, but it's not the list we end with, because we all have a very unique, growing list for our own lives and our own family. And it's a list of the evidences of God's goodness in very specific detail for you. It's a list that is intended to be reviewed, remembered, recited constantly over and over again. Each victory, each king we have is, an, each, is a chapter in our story. For some people, they have a, a conquering of an addiction. That's part of your story. 
and your list. For some of you, God just conquered your loneliness and brought you a bride or a husband. That's a victory. You sit and meditate on the, the joy of that. For some of you, there, there are diseases. For some of you, there, there are just feelings of worthlessness. There's a lot of things that God conquered for you individually. Brought you out of a specific darkness or is still bringing you out of victory, victory, victory. It's a list that's specific to you that I don't know if you've taken the time to sit and go, man, I had food on the table yesterday. The little things and the big things. All the ways that God has provided for you, all the ways that God has protected you, all the ways that God has sustained you, all the ways that God has guarded you. Our lists of conquered enemies should be very detailed and very specific because I believe it's in the small details, the ones that we easily dismiss and the ones we take for granted that God's goodness is revealed as truly glorious. In other words, be specific in your prayer. I actually think to make lists about your gratitude to God before next November when we get to Thanksgiving. And write it down so that you can remember it, put it in front of you, and review it and retell it so that God's goodness is preached to yourself and to your family again, 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 and again. So that when you come up against something that's difficult and you feel overwhelmed and you're feeling defeated, and someone says, how are you ever going to get over that? I don't even know, man, you've got cancer? Oh, you got to be kidding me. You lost your job? Oh, my gosh. You were lied to, deceived, betrayed? What are you going to do? You go, I don't know, but I know this. God did 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 this. This is nothing. Don't let that, what is happening in front of you, overwhelm and discount and cause you to dismiss everything that God has brought you to today. There is a danger in forgetting the works of the Lord. And we'll end with just a couple verses out of Psalm 105 and then worship God. We'll do exactly what this psalm calls us to do. And it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. And remember, 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 remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. If you have put your faith in Christ, which is faith in what he has done, not what you can do, then you are a child of Abraham. And come and take communion and celebrate and worship, knowing that God is in control of all things, and we glorify him to that end. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you have done to bring us back to you. All that you have done to protect us and to guard us and to sustain us in difficult trials, 
to give us incredible comforts that we have taken for granted, to even allow us to, to be in this place, Lord, with the freedom to worship you. Father, I pray you'll help us to, to see, that you'll open our eyes to see all the goodness and to move us to a place of gratitude. And as we come to the table today, Father, help us to see, even in a more amazing way, the incredible sacrifice that you lovingly gave your Son to die, that you might conquer all the enemies we would ever face in this world, that we might be with you again. Thank you. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.